0: As a student there and the course that I was teaching was a research focused class and it was one of the early attempts at early successful attempts at what has now become a staple in most higher ed which is uh, active learning or engaged learning. It's gone through three or four different names over the years. But the idea is you get the student out of the textbook and out of the classroom onto real work and at that work they're applying what they're learning in the classroom. And so that course was really built around doing market research. Again, this is 2010. The big data wave had not really started to take off yet. And the methods that we were teaching were qualitative interviewing, quantitative surveys, how to mine observational data. But it was a world of flat files. People didn't have databases built yet. If they did, they didn't know that they were there. They could access them. And so the class really developed over the last eight to ten years from a world of flat files and market research methods that were very, very slow to a world where now we're doing agile research in two-week sprints. We're utilizing machine learning. We're connecting directly to database systems or through APIs. Data is flowing more than it did in the past, and so that's really allowed for an adoption of newer technologies. But I've also taught other econ courses. I, I consider myself a futurist. And so I teach other courses, and one of them is the development of the United States. So how do we explain this economy, this massive global economy, the biggest economy that we've ever seen or know about in human history? And one that is just changing at a rate that is mind-boggling. And so that course really focused on the historical lessons of, well, what is the last 500 years? The story of that, how did social institutions and how to technology, the two great exogenous factors in economics. We take them, economists just largely take them as given. There are models for studying them, but traditional or classical Chicago-type, MIT-type economics is that you take those two things as exogenous to your models, and then you find out things like price and quantity and behavior that way. And so that course is really what turned me into a futurist because as I would would watch the progression of things like computer code that goes all the way back to Massachusetts factories where they're starting the very earliest phases of machine automation using water power to do carding and, and weaving and these things that have been traditionally done at home. And now you're bringing them into a factory. Well, that sets the stage of zero one code that gets us to machine learning.
1: Uh, That's really interesting. I mean, you you brought up a lot of points that you could definitely just spend a lifetime studying, like uh, price points, uh, the golden age of America, uh, you know, general trends of data becoming the new gold uh, gold rush. Um, What are what are some of your thoughts on? uh, You mentioned you had the history of America. Uh, what were some of your conclusions that you had in the course?
0: So I think the main conclusion was that the market economy that we have is, it's amazing thing. It is a true wonder. There's no, one of the big debates in economics is whether you should have a centralized top-down price setter, someone who just looks at the market and sets all the prices and sets all the regulation and guides the entire thing, or whether it's better, To have a decentralized approach where you have the participatory nature, things that we invoke like democracy or federalism, where no, we're going to get some of the wisdom of the crowd now. And we're going to have different levels to it. And there'll be checks and balances, but the system utilizes everybody. And in economics, it's a really obvious conclusion because of comparative advantage. Everybody has something of value to offer and everybody can be better tomorrow than they were today or what they were yesterday. And so those two things mean that we can, as a distributed group, create things that over time, if we make the right choices, they seem to go in the right direction. We get progress. We get economic gains. We get GDP going up. We get people consuming ever better, safer products. doesn't mean that they're all safe. doesn't mean that they're all great. But on the whole, the history of the United States is one of such monumental growth relative to anything else that's existed in the world. And I'm, I'm a historian as well. So my, in economics, you specialize in fields. Mine were econometrics and economic history. And I have a personal love of the classical world. So Persia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, Byzantium. And I've studied that for, for years. And it really actually helped me when doing this comparative, doing the history of the United States, because I started to see all these parallels. How do price-setting behavior by the government play out? So you have that in the Roman example where they multiple times, Diocletian is probably the most famous example of this, just says this is how much a carriage ride costs. That's not how Uber does it. Uber uses machine learning on data to do surge pricing to say this is how much a ride should cost. You see on Diocletian's list, this is how much an egg should cost. You get a market today for eggs that will bring the price to its competitive outcome. And so the conclusion of this, both in the broad, wide historical context, but even in the United States is this is an amazing place to be in an amazing time. We're all incredibly blessed by the progress. There's still lots to do and it will require everyone cooperating and coordinating to successfully pull it off.
1: You know, it's uh, interesting. I, I use, I buy silver coins and uh, a silver dollar, in about mm, 1920 or so, uh, it was worth probably almost 99 times what it is today. And uh, what's, your, what's your thought of uh, uh, the way currency is going with uh, this new cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, etc?
0: Yeah, so I had actually thought that might be why you reached out to me because I'm pretty outspoken. One of the few economists that I know of and I follow, everybody that I can, but I'm one of the few economists that has been saying now for years that cryptocurrency is the future, governments should be adopting it immediately, that it has so many superior uh, advantages to fiat paper money, that it will, because efficiency drives everything, here's another conclusion of my class, efficiency is your only God. In a world of scarcity right now, efficiency is all that matters, and so, you know, people don't like to hear that because they want to believe that they live in a world where there is no upper limit, and that world can actually come, and I do think it's coming quite quickly. I think silver, I think all the precious metal markets are going to get just flipped on their head because of asteroid mining, which is going to be a reality in the next two decades. And so, the uh, to bring this back to to the main question here about paper and crypto, and that's why I thought you reached out because I've been very vocal. I've done tokenomics modeling. In fact, we helped at my firm Imperitas, we helped Keras chain. They're a global precious metal supply chain software that's being built on blockchain to provide compliance with all of these various governmental regulations about tracking precious metals from the mine all the way to the final product market. And that stream can take you know six months, 12 months. It can change hands two dozen, three dozen times. So having a blockchain solution to track that is going to be incredibly valuable for doing the main function that a market economy depends on, which is perfect information. And so the critics of classical economics, who like to pick apart at the idea of utilitarian type optimization, and I think on the whole, those models, they're very predictive. If you want to see their predictive power, all you have to do is look at Google, who hired Hal Varian. He's one of the most famous economists, a microeconomist who published about revealed preferences and they used his expertise to build the ad ad platform, the auction platform for AdWords. So that's 80% of Alphabet's revenue comes from AdWords. And I think that's about $80 billion annually. So that's a real good world example of this stuff can work. The assumptions might be, you, you can pick apart the assumptions. That doesn't mean that they're not predictive most of the time. And so this is where you get the criticism of that school is that the main assumption in all of the classical economic approaches is that we have perfect information when making decisions. So yes, we're a distributed group, just like a, a decentralized database system with a ledger for something like blockchain. And as long as we have the right information, then collectively we should be able to make better decisions than some prime mover central authority. And so it's interesting that right now, blockchain as a technology, its most disruptive role is gonna be in flipping this on its head. Because to this point, anyone who wanted to criticize the classical approach to economics or things like financial modeling, which are all built on the classic assumptions, so you're probably familiar with the efficient market hypothesis, yeah, That's built completely on top of this smooth, optimizing, maximizing behavior that's very simplistic mathematically. And it's its Achilles' heel is, if you don't have good information, there's no reason to believe you'll get anywhere good. It's just random. But data, and this is what lured me to data so much, it is that expression of the perfect information. And so we're getting more data now, Anybody who says that we can't get to this idea of having near perfect information hasn't been paying attention to just the last five years. And so all these markets, silver markets, uh, my favorite example of the market uh, efficient market hypothesis that people use, I would use it in class to show, hey, you have to question this idea, at least in the short run, for sure, is if you remember, ooh, 2000, I want to say it was probably 2012 or 13 when Gangnam Style became that just overnight success all across the world, that South Korean pop star. I don't know if you remember that moment. But he was, I think, one of the first YouTube people to get to a billion views. It was just an overnight global sensation. Well, his father, the artist's father, was the CEO of DI Corp, which is a semiconductor company in South Korea. Their stock shot up. hmm <laughs> When this song, you can just go look. There's a great, I don't know if it's Wall Street Journal that did some comparison where they analyzed this. You can just see it shoot up and then you can see it fall as the song loses popularity. Then the same artist released another song that didn't go as viral, but it was still a big hit. The stock shoots up again.
1: Okay, that's a good... Do, do, you, think that, do you think, though, the, uh, the, uh, um, the rationale hypothesis uh, only works in a model that's perfect, um, well, but in general that perfect for individual investors, it's not really perfect.
0: Yeah, because there's no logical explanation for why someone's son's YouTube career should a ne- should a impact positively the fundamentals of a semiconductor company.
1: That is interesting. There's no... What would be the correlation? Right, yeah.
0: correlation. And there's clearly something...
1: Last like, name or something?
0: I think it's around human expectations. I think it's just around, but it's a short-term thing that in the long run, the market is not going to keep that price high based on the YouTube performance of the CEO's son. Once that information becomes discovered, that's going to, that goes away. And you're seeing that in cryptocurrencies. The information is better about cryptocurrencies than any other instrument on the market, better than any sort of money, better than any sort of fund. Because it has total transparency, you can trust the ledger because of cryptography, because of consensus and decentralization. It's a robust system because it's distributed. The data that you get from it, which Google has now eight different currency ledgers, cryptocurrency ledgers in their BigQuery, blockchain's one. You can just go download the blockchain data from Bitcoin and you can track every single token that's ever existed and you can see what wallets it's passed through You can actually calculate velocity because you can see it in the system. It's a superior product to paper money. Technology made it possible. We didn't have this ability two decades ago, three decades ago. And so this is another one of those conclusions that really stuck with me and the students of this class that I teach was that it is such a constantly changing environment that to believe that anything isn't possible because it hasn't been possible in the past is a mistake.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the golden age? I, I caught my attention on that uh, because uh, that's one of the you what know, do you mean by books. The age? Define the golden age. Uh, golden age is basically an era of peace, uh, increased uh, productivity, uh, you know, military hegemony that is uh, created. Um, uh, deterrent factors. So basically, our enemies aren't attacking us. Anymore. So, do you
0: what um, do you think? There's been a golden age in the United States.
1: Uh, I, I'm saying that we're in that age now.
0: Okay, I'm I'm probing you on this because in economics they call the golden age of American economic history the post World War II to the nineteen early 1970s, and you're hearing that actually a lot right now. So oh, So you'll hear, if you start to look at the uh, current, very popular mainstream economists and the people who typically follow them and then sort of repeat what they say in the public domain, you will hear them when they're talking about these new tax plans, they'll talk about the golden era of American economic history. And they're always pointing to the 1960s, late maybe 50s, but really the 1960s. And there's an argument for that, because if you look at the country's history, there had been a lot of GDP growth leading up to it. People did have all these new commodities, houses that were getting bigger, two cars, a television. And the cost of those things was relatively stable. They were p- big purchases, but people could plan for them, and then they would last for their life. Uh, single income earner families, it, I think it is a false narrative, personally. It overlooks the fact that the rest of the entire world had just been bombed into oblivion by World mm-hmm. War II, and we had the real, the only real and high-performing economy left and could produce. And so that's why I think it tapers off through the 1970s and 80s. And I just wanted to make sure that you weren't referring only to that period
1: in time. No, I'm actually referring to uh, kind of this new era of uh, – it's like a second dot-com boom, you know? Uh, except it's a uh, machine learning, deep AI, uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency—you know—the uh, everything focused on data as uh, productivity enhancer. Uh, so you're seeing lots of new jobs. Ed, who's right driving before. it, by the way?
0: Who's driving all this progress?
1: I think it's the American corporations. I think they have a lot of money. Yep. Well, I would say
0: you're halfway there. It is the American corporations who definitely have the money to fund this. And it is the American people who are often single young individuals. I'm talking people in their teens and 20s right now who are watching YouTube videos and doing online courses. They may not even be in college. And they are creating some of the next best solutions. They immediately get snatched up by Facebook and Google and Amazon, huge contracts.
1: And, yeah, and many of them, them are self-taught. Them selling for a billion dollars. I mean, it's amazing. How many Google companies hired a, before...
0: Yeah, Google just hired a 13 or almost 14-year-old AI specialist who got a million-dollar bonus.
1: Yeah, I read his story. It was amazing. I mean, right. he, he's programmed since eight years of age.
0: Right, and when technology
1: made that years possible. To, yeah, how did he get that recognition so quickly?
0: Because all that matters right now in this new system, we're back to efficiency is your only God. All that matters, including to the corporations is, can you deliver on this need that we have? And it used to be that the educational system provided the signal to an employer. This person made it through four rigorous years of training on how to be a good citizen, how to be a good thinker, and to learn a specific skill set. Well, the universities are failing at all three of those, in my opinion, at this point. The cost of education is out of control. That market is spiraling towards collapse. The schools are building ever larger, nicer, newer buildings for fewer and fewer students who aren't getting out of it what they expected. The public, the businesses aren't getting employees who they feel are up to whatever tasks are necessary. And so they're just looking online and they say, oh, this guy actually has a GitHub. Let's look at what he's coded oh, this lady has a YouTube series. We can listen to her from her own words and assess her qualities. And some of these individuals are getting jobs. And they're just circumnavigating this other big system. And so I'd say you're halfway there. The American corporations are funding it. And it's good that they see the impact and potential of this. But it is just individual people who are pushing the frontier much harder and much faster because of technology than anything that was possible even 20 years ago.
1: And That's what I, I would say. Maybe I should get away from that golden age uh, phrase, but that's what I see today is that individual autonomy is really increased. I mean, you're, you're talking about correlations. I, I talked to a man from Israel uh, on uh, SuperQuery, it was really interesting. We're not just talking to people in our neighborhood or in our local community, we're talking to people all over the world who have great ideas.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't want to rain on your parade because I believe everything that you're saying is true. But I also feel like there is a uh, simultaneous ratcheting up of centralized government power into fewer and fewer hands and fewer and fewer systems. And you can see this in the amount of regulation the United States has experienced. So if you go back to that golden era and you look at like the 1960s to the present And you say, okay, what were all the federal regulatory agencies and the laws on the books and the things that the code, because all that stuff's published by the government. I think it's either Cato or Mercatus that has a YouTube video where they've actually visualized this for you. And it's it's just a guy standing there talking. He's putting books and things on the shelf to show the size of this. The federal regulatory system has increased 18-fold in roughly the last 50 years. Now, you can argue that some of that's because the economy increased. Well, the economy has increased about six-fold. So it's about three times the the pace, which makes sense. If you're in the business world, that makes sense with the environment you experience because, and we get this as a data science company, so many of our customers, which are businesses, are all under various and intense regulation. We have one client that's a a health information exchange. You go into their bathroom. And over the urinals are signs that tell you. And it's like a poster. It looks like a, a poster for some sort of July 4th picnic. It's all bright and well-colored to grab your attention. And it says, 15 years in jail and $100,000 fine if you accidentally release any data. Yeah, that's not in most people's offices right crazy. now. But it's happening in certain parts of the market. And so, again, that increase in just the measurable, quantifiable things mirrors the experience of the business community. And so you have technology and technology always leads on law. So that's really important for people to understand in this. It's a cat and mouse game. So yes, we have this moment right now where all these individuals are creating just amazing new things because the technology allows it. And now the government's going to come in and use their big broad brush to just regulate so much of this out of existence to try to shape the direction it's going to take because we're still falling in to the false belief that nobody can do it better than the government. The centralized argument. And this is why I said blockchain is the ultimate disruptive technology of our era because it's going to prove or disprove. I believe it will prove I'm leaving the door open for the fact that it could disprove that decentralized systems are going to outperform centralized systems every single time.
1: I I think, uh, that's uh that's why my belief system is is that decentralized systems outperform. That's why I, I go to work, that's why I you know, I'm able to capitalize, that's why I'm able to learn new things and get paid for the things that I, you know, have skill sets for. I don't need to uh, try to get on a, uh, you know, for a government job or you know, be rated out that way by numerous tests. I yeah, don't and, have to perform. And
0: and what you're talking about is the way in which decentralized systems create their pros right this is the pro of the decentralized system you do what you are after that's a really again in historical terms that's a blessed thing you could have been born in feudal europe and you would have done whatever your father did because there's no education system for you so the only way for you to learn a trade is to just do what your father does plus you're an asset to him as he's doing whatever he does as a profession, if you're, you know, 10 years old, you can start to add value, marginal value, which means that the profit of your whole little organization, 50% of which goes to the king, of course, that could have been your world. No, you get to pick what you study, where you live, what you'll do. It's a better system. And it's also one that has been historically more decentralized than anything else that's existed in history. So this tendency towards centralized power in regulatory agencies, look, you can't pretend like it doesn't have pros as well. In times of crisis, the fastest way to get things done is to have one person say that's how it's gonna be. But that's not how the government functions. The government's incredibly dysfunctional. And so the pros that it does bring come at a huge cost, and one of the most important but least discussed of those is regulatory capture. When you centralize power, into one place. You increase the incentive for people who you wouldn't want to have that power to try desperately to get it. And I think that's what you're seeing happening right now in the United States. We have so much centralized power in the government that people are willing to do anything to get control of it on both sides. And there's other ways in which regulatory capture plays out. If you are a federal employee at one of these regulatory agencies and you decide you want to retire, there is most certainly a very comfortable six-figure salary that will let you work from home coming your way from some think tank or some organization who wants to hire you as a consultant so that their clients can better navigate the regulatory system that you just came from. Because you have insider knowledge. You know how it actually works, how people really consider things. You know who the people are. That regulatory capture is only possible because of the centralized power. and so. Those cons don't get brought up at all in the current debate.
1: Well, um, I think, yeah, you know, just in summary, you've talked about efficiency, uh, the pros and cons to centralized power, decentralized uh, power, um, the positive impacts of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. I guess cryptocurrency is something I need to look more into Um, and, uh, just, you want to share some last thoughts and then we'll wrap up. So if
0: you want to learn high level cryptocurrency stuff, you can go, you can go to the Imperitas YouTube page. So it's just youtube.com forward slash Imperitas. That's E M P E R I T A S. We have a three course crash course, three part crash course on cryptocurrency that is from last year. I recommend that, especially if you're new to, the, new to that space. Uh, it's the Wild West. So buyer beware, caveat emptor applies here. The benefit of crypto over other things that you might look into is that it has to be spelled out in actual code. There's a saying in cryptocurrency that code is law because it has to be coded into the blockchain, into, into the, the distributed software that everyone's going to be using to participate in the system. It has to be there. And it's transparent. Everybody can see it because it's decentralized. You can go set up a node for Bitcoin and see exactly all the the way in which Bitcoin functions. It's 100% transparent. So if you're willing to put in the effort to understand something, you, you don't have this kind of transparency with anything else that you would consider in the economy right now. Again, this is One of the benefits, but look at the benefit. The only thing you left off your list, your summary list was information, perfect information. That is going to be what turns this next phase into the golden era. I believe we're actually moving to the golden era that you were describing. I I think that uh, we've been operating in a world of scarcity and with things like asteroid mining, which will solve so many of the problems, pollution, production in space has no pollution effects. And it's really easy to drop it from space. Amazon's going to have targeted drops from space in two decades because it will be more efficient, so much more efficient. There is a really, and and that world is not one of scarcity anymore. And now it really does just come down to how do we want to cooperate? All the social institutions become really key. How do we want to cooperate? And the information is the path to, to that success story. We have to just keep getting better insights more valuable data blockchain data will outperform in quality government databases every single time because it's trustworthy it's transparent and it's complete and so i do think that through the list that you gave and information specifically we can move to that golden
1: age well thank you for uh, for interviewing and i'm going to research more on this perfect information okay and appreciate your uh, thanks time. for having me on. Okay, bye.